We're back uh, to the end times, and in the introductory sessions, those who have been watching, except for just a few uh, overviews of the end times, you might have been really struck that we're talking about the second coming, or the that's the purpose of this main series, we're talking about the second coming in the uh, last days, but we've been talking mostly not about the future, but about history. And that may seem strange, right? But here's a key concept, it's your first blanks for the night. For people to trust, here it is, for people to trust the prophecies about the last days in the second coming, we must be able to show that God can actually foretell the future. And this series is showing us that God has been in the prophetic business for a long time. You've heard me say this again. All the way since Egypt, God's prophets foretold the rise and fall of every one of the great civilizations. And so to re-engage Get back there. We'll do a really quick overview tonight and then launch into some amazing time because we made it all the way to Babylon and tonight Babylon's going to fall. So we're making a giant move forward. Um, but uh, here's your first great civilization. There's your next blank. Egypt. And uh, Egypt was the empire present during, all the way back during the time of, of Abraham. And um, you uh, hopefully have gotten your notes. And let me show you this timeline, and this timeline, uh, you've, it's pretty crowded, uh, and the one obviously that you have that you can download and print out uh, has a lot more detail to it, and uh, is e easier to read, but just so you know, this is two sets of timelines, just because I don't have a 12-foot space to work with, uh, and the top one is the history of God's people, so you see the split here at Noah, where you get Shem, for, for the Shemites, or the Semites, right? Uh, from which Abraham and Jacob and Israel come. And then you have uh, the Gentiles. And you can see all the way back in 3300 BC, maybe even earlier, Egypt was already dom the dominant world empire. So uh, think of this. Abraham in 2000 BC was already, Egypt had already been around for almost one and a half thousand years as the dominant civilization. And they go all the way till 700 when Assyria invades, okay? And that, of course, at this time, let me just uh, point out, that will have gone through, of course, Moses and the Exodus, through the judges, through the kings, through David, through the dividing of the kingdom in 722 is when Assyria is starting to emerge, and that's when they are coming, headed toward Egypt to take over them, uh, and they actually take uh, the northern tribes of Israel, not yet, uh, not yet Judah, um, or the southern kingdom, but they uh, exile the ten tribes, take them into captivity, and then uh, in 700, finally, uh, Assyria takes over, and that's um, uh, uh, an amazing uh, transition, and in fact, it is seen coming by Isaiah. So turn with me to your first scriptural text tonight, Isaiah chapter 20. Isaiah is the first of the major prophets, so if you find the Psalms, go to the write uh, three or four books, and you'll find Isaiah. It's a, a large book, so it's easy to find. And look at the first four verses of Isaiah chapter 20. In the year of the commander, the commander came to Ashdod, when Sargon, king of Assyria, sent him, and he fought against Ashdod and captured it. And at that time, the Lord spoke through Isaiah, the son of Amos, said, go loosen the sackcloth from your hips. This is a famous prophecy. This is bad, being a prophet. Look at this. And take your shoes off. And he did so, going naked and barefoot. And the Lord said, even as my servant Isaiah has gone naked and barefoot three years. How's that for a command from God to a prophet? Three years. 
as a sign and a token against Egypt and Cush, Ethiopia. So the king of Assyria will lead away the captives of Egypt and the exiles of Cush, young and old, naked and barefoot, with buttocks uncovered to the shame of Egypt. And 60 years later, that would have been about 760 BC when Isaiah prophesied, 60 years later, exactly as prophesied, Assyria invaded Egypt and crushed that empire. So then we get to the second great civilization, write it in Assyria, two S's there. This is not modern-day Syria, much farther uh, to the east, north, much, much larger. This is Assyria, uh, and you can see we came into 700, and Sargon of Assyria takes over, and they are going to be around till 612 when the next empire comes. But before we get to that, I, wanna, I want us to... Um, look at some of the prophecies of this. Now, uh, remember, Assyria had a capital, the capital of Nineveh, which you're, you may not be familiar with that, but you're certainly familiar with the, the uh, <coughs> series, the story of Jonah. Um, and so in 612, the Assyrian empire that had taken over Egypt in 700 BC, they fall. And you may remember the, from the lesson on Assyria that we did, that for many centuries, the only evidence that Nineveh, the capital of Assyria, ever existed was in the Bible. Many, many centuries. There was no archaeological evidence. There was no other historical evidence. Just the Bible talked about Assyria. And this led some scholars, scholars to deny that the city ever existed. But in the 19th century, archaeologists uncovered the ruins of Nineveh in ancient Mesopotamia near the banks of the Tigris River. Now let's review the archaeology of the Nineveh discovery, just a quick review, but it is really impressive, and Nahum's prophecies, okay? So before we start writing that in, turn to Nahum. So you're in Isaiah, the major prophets. You go to the right till you get to Daniel, the last of the major prophets, five later, and then you have Hosea, Joel, Amos, Obadiah, Jonah, Micah, Nahum. So uh, if you get to, uh, to the last four, Zephaniah, Haggai, Zechariah, Malachi, you've gone too far. So Nahum, minor prophet, Right, uh, And so the archaeological finding, when they discover, the British archaeologists discover the, the ruins of Nineveh, number one, the Tigris River overflowed its banks and destroyed a large portion of Nineveh's fortifying wall. So look at Nahum's prophecy of that. So I just gave you the archaeological finding that was found in the 19th century, but look at the prophecy, verse 1, the oracle of Nineveh. The book of the vision of Nahum the Elkishite, and look at the first uh, couple of phrases of verse 8 at the end of that second paragraph. But with an overflowing flood, he, God, will make a complete end of its sight. So, archaeological finding number two. Again, they've discovered, uncovered Nineveh. The Babylonians invaded, here's your blanks, invaded through the breach in the wall and burned the city to the ground. That's what the archaeologists actually found about what happened to Nineveh. So look at chapter 3. That's easy to get to because Nineveh is only, I mean, Nahum is only three chapters long. Um, so look at verse 13. Verse 13 in Nahum chapter 3. Behold, your people are women in your midst. The gates of your land are opened wide to your enemies. Fire consumes your gate bars. Draw yourself water for the siege. Strengthen your fortifications. Go to the clay and tread the mortar. Here is this great warning from Nahum. 
uh, to Nineveh. Take hold of the brick and mold. There, fire will consume you. Amazing, right? So, archaeological number finding number one, they're flooded. That's exactly as Nahum said it was going to be. Number two, fire will consume you. That was the second archaeological finding. Number three, after its destruction, Nineveh was lost and hidden, and it wasn't discovered until 1842. There's your blank. Wasn't discovered until 1842. Again, until that moment in time, the only place Nineveh had ever existed was in the Bible, uh, as far as people were concerned. So look, and uh, still in chapter 3, look at verse 11. This is remarkable. You too, <clears throat> Nahum to Nineveh, you too will become drunk. You will be hidden. I'll say, how about two and a half thousand years, 25 centuries, they were hidden. So hidden that lots of people said, there's no such thing as Nineveh. It's just, uh, it's just um, symbolism from the Bible. And there it is, discovered. So now, we move from Assyria into Babylon, which is where we have been, right? The third civilization, right? It in Babylon. And so you can see, we've gone from Egypt, reigning from at least 3300 BC all the way to 700. Assyria invades in 700 and goes into uh, to, till 612. And in 612, Nineveh falls to Babylon, the great Babylonian empire, King Nebuchadnezzar. And we, um, uh, in, in the emergence of Babylon, we took a deep dive into Nebuchadnezzar's dream, right? This uh, amazing dream about the future history of the world. Um, and as we're starting this series uh, again up on the, on the prophecy and continuing forward, let's look at the statue again. If you haven't read through Daniel, Daniel 12, I won't take the, the, the time tonight because we have so much content to cover. But for now, let's just look at the, the, uh, the statue. And it turns out that the statue uh, of the dream uh, that he makes, here's how the dream goes. Um, he sees this big giant uh, uh, man in his mind, and uh, in his dream, the head is made of gold, and the arms and chest are of silver, And the belly and the legs, the thighs, belly and the thighs are of bronze. The legs are of iron. And the feet and toes are iron mixed with clay. Way more on that later because that is an incredible uh, 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 picture prophecy of the ten kingdoms in Revelation that come together that are ruled over by Antichrist. Just absolutely amazing. This gives the whole history of the world uh, in advance. Um, and uh, then Daniel interprets the dream after a whole bunch of stuff. Again, Daniel chapter 2, read it if you haven't. Um, this, he says, uh, this is you, uh, Nebuchadnezzar. So this is Babylon, the head of gold. The chest and arms of silver are Medo, Persia, way more on that later uh, next week. The amazing details of the Medes were pr prominent first, but then Persia take took over. So you may only have heard of Persia, 
because later it was, it was all about Persia. The, they kind of consumed the Medes. Um, then the bronze uh, uh, belly and thighs. Um, this is Greece. Again, remarkable details on this that are just staggering that we'll be dealing with in the future. Then the iron, le the iron uh, legs are Rome. And again, you see if you have been... If you've uh, been to those parts of the, of the uh, Thursology series, this is the East and the West, Byzantium and the city of Rome, uh, Eastern Orthodoxy and Roman Catholicism, really remarkable how uh, it is. And then this is renewed Rome, the renewed Roman Empire that will emerge out of Europe, 10 countries or 10 European areas uh, that will finally emerge in the end. This, of course, has not happened um, yet. So, um, before we look, uh, before we took a break uh, from Babylon, right, to do the Passover mini-series, um, we hadn't finished going through the historical accuracy of Nebuchadnezzar's statue yet. Uh, and yet, we've already seen what an amazing and perfect prophecy of the empire that it is. This prophecy shows how faithful God has been to make sure that humanity has the ability to test whether he's really the God of the ages, whether he really controls and knows history. We've had plenty of detail to see that. And in our last lessons before the Passover series, we found that Babylon was the centerpiece for understanding the history and the future of the world. So we learned an enormous amount from the Babylonian Empire. And one of the key concepts comes... Uh, out of the Hebrew word for Babylon, which is the Hebrew word is Balal, which, as you learned, means confusion. When it's used as a proper noun, it's Babylon or Babel, the Tower of Babel, same thing. God confused their languages. That's a classic way in Hebrew that they would describe the tower about with something that had occurred, an event, and God confused their languages, so they called it the Tower of Balal. Uh, Babylon uh, the same thing. So, as we finally prepare to leave Babylon, there's a remarkable twist that occurs in the story that highlights the contrast between the confusion of worldly wisdom and the incredible insight of godly wisdom. We've seen the confusion of Bab Babylon spectacularly displayed in its first king, right? Nebuchadnezzar became crazy, right? So self absorbed. And the multi-metallic image that he constructed represented the future of the world, as we've just gone through. And when he looked at himself as the head of gold and the rest of the statue that represented the, the rest of human civilization, he looked at it and what he says is, it's awesome and it's of extraordinary splendor. But then we saw that Daniel also had a vision of the future of civilization, but Daniel's vision in chapter 7 was very different. Unlike Nebuchadnezzar's dream where he saw himself as a precious head of gold, Daniel's dream revealed the truth about Babylon, right? It was a combination of a lion, <laughs> the king of the beasts, and an eagle, the king of the birds. And in scripture, birds are often used metaphorically to represent the demonic. So while Nebuchadnezzar saw Babylon as beautiful and extraordinary, Daniel saw the truth. Babylon was destructive, it was deadly, it was ruthless, it was terrifying. In fact, today, if you go to the Berlin Museum 
there resides a replica of the gates of the city of Babylon, and emblazoned on them, guarding the city, is the national symbol of Babylon, portrayed exactly as Daniel prophesied them to be. Guess what? Two winged lions. That's Daniel's view of Babylon. But as powerful and awesome as Babylon was, the mighty civilization came to an end. And just as the prophets had predicted the rise of Babylon and the conquering of Assyria, God's prophets also foretold Babylon's fall to the hands of Medo-Persia. So let's look at some of these impressive prophecies. Here we go, prophet number one. Now, seeing the prophecies of the fall of the Babylonian Empire. Prophet number one, Jeremiah, here's your blank, Jeremiah foretold Babylon's fall. So turn back to the left to the major prophets. Jeremiah is the second of the major prophets. We've already been in Isaiah. Jeremiah is right after Isaiah. Turn with me to the 51st chapter near the end of Jeremiah. Jeremiah chapter 51, look at verse 24. We won't look at a lot of verses, but we don't need to. Look at this, verse 24, Jeremiah 51. But I will repay Babylon and all the inhabitants of Chaldea for all their evil that they have done in Zion before your eyes, declares the Lord. Behold, I am against you, O destroying mountain, who destroy the whole earth, declares the Lord, and I will stretch out my hand against you and roll down from the crags and I will make you a burnt out mountain. And then look at verse 28. Verse 28. Consecrate the nations against her. Again, this is Jeremiah prophesying against Babylon, and notice what he says. The king of the Medes, their governors and all their prefects, and every land of their dominion. So this prophecy was made at least 50 years in advance by Jeremiah of, of when it happened. But you'll, um, if you're a real history buff, you might think that the prophecy wasn't all that much of a stretch for Jeremiah to make, right? By the time he lived, the Medes and the Persians were becoming quite powerful in their own right. So Babylon was still in charge officially of the world, but the Medes and the Persians were starting to emerge. So you might say that Jeremiah was just really good at understanding military history, and they made an educated guess about the next world power that would be coming. So he just was a good guesser, a really smart guy, a great historian, and so uh, because he almost could have seen it coming in some way. So that's, let's go then to prophet number two. Isaiah foretold Babylon's fall, and this gets much, much more impressive. So you're in Jeremiah, turn to the left one book uh, to Isaiah. Isaiah chapter 13. Isaiah chapter 13, and look at this, verse 1. The oracle concerning Babylon, which Isaiah the son of Amos saw, lift up a standard on the bare hill, raise your voice to them, wave the hand that they may enter the doors of the nobles. Now go, to, now go with me from verse 2 to verse 17, right? Way down to the next paragraph. Behold, I am going to stir up the Medes against them. Interesting. Who will not value silver or take pleasure in gold, and their bows will mow down the young men, and they will not even have compassion on the fruit of the womb, nor will they, uh, their eye pity children. Look at this, verse 19. And Babylon, the beauty of kingdoms, the glory of the Chaldeans' pride, will be as when God overthrew Sodom and Gomorrah. So, Isaiah's prophecy occurred, you ready for this? Occurred before Egypt fell to Assyria, and before Assyria fell to Babylon, and 
before Babylon fell to Medo-Persia. So this is more than two centuries in advance. Isaiah specifically foretold the detailed future of two empires, you ready? Two empires that didn't even exist yet in his time. So I want to try to help you understand the impossibility of this prophecy. I, I want you to write this down, right? So how many empires had existed in the time of Isaiah, 760 B.C.? If you look on your timeline, you'll be able to see. But in 760 B.C., during Isaiah's time, how many empires had existed in history when he prophesied? You ready? Fill in the blank. Just one. Egypt. Egypt for more than 2,000 years had ruled the earth. The idea of a future takeover of Egypt was inconceivable at that point. The earth had always been run by Egypt from their perspective. But now look at the scope of the civilizations involved in Isaiah's prophecy. It starts with Egypt, right? That's, where, that's who was in charge when Isaiah lived. Notice Assyria is your first blank. Your second blank is Babylon. And your third blank is Medo-Persia. So you ready for this? Look at the magnificence of Isaiah's prophecy. Here's your blanks. He predicted the rise of the fourth great empire. Think of this. He predicted the rise of the fourth great empire before the fall of the first. That's right. Amazing. Think about that. The rise of Medo-Persia predicted before Egypt ever even fell and before he had ever even heard of Babylon or Medo-Persia. This is incredible. It's impossible unless, unless you know our God. No wonder Isaiah could write down passages like this from chapter 40. I am God, there is no other. I am God, there is no one like me, declaring the end from the beginning and establishing things which have not yet happened. Friends, the greatness of our God cannot be overstated. His greatness is unfathomable. His awesome power and authority are beyond description, beyond comprehension, beyond articulation, and beyond our ability to communicate. We serve an awesome God. He has declared the end from the beginning, and through the prophets, he has shown us that he knows. Prophet number three, prophet number three, foretelling the fall of Babylon. Remember, again, is Daniel foretold Babylon's fall? There's your blank. So now you're in the first, uh, you're in Isaiah, the first of the major prophets. Turn to the fifth and last of the major prophets to Daniel chapter 2. Um, and here we are in the midst of the uh, interpretation of this statue that we already have gone through, right? Just going to do a snippet of this. Look at verse 36 in Daniel chapter 2. This was the dream. Now we shall tell its interpretation before the king. You, O king, are the king of kings, Daniel speaking to Nebuchadnezzar. You, O king, are the king of kings to whom the God of heaven has given the kingdom, the power, the strength, and the glory. And wherever his son, the sons of men dwell, or the beasts of the field, or the birds of the sky, he has given them into your hand and has caused you to rule over them all. You are the head of gold, talking to Nebuchadnezzar really and Babylon both. Ready? And verse 39, and after you, there will arise another kingdom inferior to you. But Daniel's prophecy of the overflow of Babylon gets way more specific than this. Turn to the eighth chapter of Daniel, the eighth chapter of Daniel. This is really, 
remarkable as you see this all starting to come together. We'll be back in chapter 5. Just really remarkable. Um, so, Daniel chapter 8, verse 1. In the third year of reign of Belshazzar the king. So, think about this. Daniel starts at the beginning of the exile when Nebuchadnezzar is the king. This is Belshazzar, not Belteshazzar. Belteshazzar is Daniel's other Babylonian given name. But uh, here's Belshazzar, Nebuchadnezzar's son. And notice what it says. In the third year of the reign of Belshazzar, second king of Babylon, the king, uh, the, uh, the king, a vision occurred to me, Daniel, subsequent to the one which had appeared to me previously. Talking about the one in uh, chapter 7. Verse 2, and I looked at the vision and it came about that while I was looking, what I, uh, what I saw was a citadel of Susa, which is in the province of Elam. Notice the detail there. And I looked in the vision and I myself was beside the Ulai Canal. Then I lifted up my gaze and looked and behold, a ram which had two horns was standing in front of the canal. Now the two horns were long, but one was longer than the other with the longer one coming up last. You're going to see how that perfectly fits the future history of the Medes and the Persians. Verse 4, I saw the ram budding westward, northward, and southward. There it is, coming from Persia. And no other beast could stand before him, nor was there anyone to rescue his, from his power. But he did as he pleased and magnified himself, this ram, the Medo-Persian Empire. So we're going to come back to this prophecy in more detail next week because it is spectacular. But I want us to look at a few of the specifics tonight. In this vision, Daniel transport, was transported to Susa, a small, nondescript city in Babylon. He sees himself standing by a canal in front of a palace. Why in the world did God place Daniel somewhere in rural Babylon on the bank of an unremarkable waterway. This town wouldn't have even made the red letters in a AAA map. For those of you who are watching that remember AAA maps, right? Wouldn't even have been red letter. It basically wouldn't, wouldn't have made it. In fact, if you're from Arizona, let this sink in. Basically, <laughs> Susa was the Eloi of Babylon, okay? But God knew that this place was going to be the very center of power in the next kingdom. Babylon was falling, and the Persian Empire was about to begin. In fact, if we turn years ahead and we find Queen Esther in the royal court in the next civilization, Persia, guess what we see the capital was? Keep a finger in Daniel and go back to Esther. Esther's just two books to the left of the Psalms, right? Esther, Job, Psalms. So two to the left and look at the first verse of the book of Esther, Esther chapter 1, verse 1. Now remember, this is she's going to become queen in this book, the queen of Persia, and look where she is in the Persian Empire. Now, it took place in the days of Ahasuerus. Another name for that is Artaxerxes. You may have that in your translation. Ahasuerus, the Ahasuerus who reigned from India to Ethiopia, over 127 provinces, gigantic Persian Empire. In those days, as King Ahasuerus sat on the royal throne, which was in Susa, the capital. In the third year of his reign, he gave a banquet for all the princes and attendants, the army of the officers of Persia and Media, the nobles, the princes of his provinces, being in his presence. So Daniel was right about the next empire and 
about the capital of the next empire, even though there would have been no way to predict that if this wasn't a godly vision. So let's turn to the days before the fall of Babylon, right? That's what we're doing tonight, the fall of Babylon. During the peak of their power, and see how unlikely it was that Daniel could make this prophecy that Babylon was going to fall in his time. I love this uh, book from, from uh, John Walvoord, an amazing Old Testament scholar. And listen to what he says about the power of Babylon. This is absolutely remarkable. Herodotus, who, is a, who was a secular historian, okay? Herodotus gives a picture of the city of Babylon being 14 miles square with the Euphrates River running through it from north to south. According to Herodotus, the walls were 350 feet high, 87 feet thick, with 250 watchtowers 100 feet higher than the wall itself. The city was surrounded by a deep water moat which made attacking it difficult. Babylon was large enough area to sustain itself for many years. Provisions were such that the claim was made that it could last for 20 years of siege. Because remember, the Euphrates River goes right through the city of Babylon, under the walls, uh, and then out under the uh, uh, walls at the other end. So they had an unlimited water source. So there was just no way that Babylon could fall. But, that's exactly what God, through Daniel, said that no matter how like, unlikely it was, it was going to happen. So turn back with me to Daniel chapter 5. Uh, you may be uh, familiar with only a portion of this, but this is a really famous uh, biblical text. Daniel chapter 5, and we're going to read a fairly extensive part of Daniel chapter 5 because this is so key to what happens when Babylon falls. Belshazzar the king, verse 1, chapter 5, Belshazzar the king held a great feast for a thousand of his nobles, and he was drinking wine in the presence of the thousand. When Belshazzar tasted the wine, he gave orders to bring the gold, the silver vessels which Nebuchadnezzar his father had taken out of the temple which is in Jerusalem. This was a bad idea. So think about this. He's so gloating over the power of Babylon and all that they have taken over, including Israel, and Jerusalem, and taking back all the gold and silver vessels from the temple of Jerusalem. So he says, go get that stuff, right? So he said, in order that the king and his nobles, his wives and his concubines might drink from them. Then he brought the gold vessels that had been taken out of the temple, the house of God, which was in Jerusalem, and the kings and nobles, his wives and his concubines drank from them. They drank the wine and praised the gods of gold, silver, and bronze, iron, wood, and stone. Not a good idea. Notice now with the, uh, no, notice now with me the, uh, the next verses. Um, verse 6, then the king's face grew pale and his thoughts, verse 6, alarmed him. Let me go back to verse 5, sorry. Suddenly the fingers of a man, uh, a man's hand emerged and began writing opposite the lampstand on the plaster of the wall of the king's palace and the king saw the back of the hand that did the writing. Then the king's face grew pale and his thoughts alarmed him. And his hip joints, look at this picture, his hip joints went slack and his knees began knocking together. Drop down to verse 10, the next paragraph. The queen entered the banquet hall because of the words of the king and his nobles. The queen spoke and said, O king, live forever. Do not let your thoughts alarm you or your face be pale. There is a man in your kingdom, talking of Daniel, of course, there is a man in your kingdom who has a spirit of the holy gods. And in the days of your father, illumination, insight, and wisdom like the wisdom of the gods were found in him. 
and King Nebuchadnezzar, your father, your father the king appointed him chief of the magicians, conjurers, Chaldeans, and diviners. Verse 12, this was because of an extraordinary spirit, knowledge and insight, interpretation of dreams, explanation of enigmas, and solving of difficult problems were found in this Daniel, whom the king named Belteshazzar. Let Daniel now be summoned, and he will declare the interpretation. Again, this is make sure you have your text every week, either your, your, uh, uh, your hard copy Bible or your e-Bible, so you can follow along. Ready? Verse 13. Then Daniel was brought before the king. The king spoke, said to Daniel, Are you the Daniel who is from the exiles of Judah, whom my father the king brought from Judah? Now I have heard that you have a spirit of the gods, uh, and that it is in you, and that illumination, insight, and extraordinary wisdom have been found in you. Just now the wise men and the conjurers were brought in before me, and that they might read the inscription and its interpretation made known to me, but they could not declare the interpretation of the message. But I personally have heard about you, that you are able to give interpretations and solve problems. Now, if you are able to read the inscription and make its interpretation known to me, you will be clothed with purple and wear a necklace of gold around your neck, and you will be given the authority as the third ruler in the kingdom. I love Daniel's response. Look at this, verse 17. Then Daniel answered and said to him before the king, Keep your gifts for yourself or give your rewards to someone else. However, I will read the inscription to the king and make known the interpretation to the king. And so notice, Daniel goes through and he said, talks about this incredible stuff that's going on and all that God has done, right? And how the Most High has given him this, this incredible information. And I want us to go down now to when, when uh, you're talking to, uh, around uh, verse 23. Look at this. But you have exalted yourself against the Lord, Daniel, to Belshazzar, the Lord of heaven, and you have brought the vessels of his house before you, and your nobles, your wives, your concubines have been drinking wine from them, and you have praised the gods of silver and gold and bronze and iron and wood and stone, which do not see or hear or understand, but the God in whose hand is your life breath and your ways you have not glorified." Then the hand he has sent from him, and the inscription was written out. Now, and here's Daniel looking at the wall. Look at this, verse 25. Now this is the inscription that was written out, many, many tekel yufarsin. This is the interpretation of the message. Many, which means number. God has numbered your kingdom and put it to an end. Tekel, or tekel. You have been weighed, tekel means weight. You have been weighed on the scales and found deficient. And peris, the root word for eupharsin, right? Peris, which means division. So, peris, your kingdom has been divided and given over to the Medes and the Persians. Now remember, we just heard how impossible it was that Babylon could fall. And listen to verse 30. This is astounding. Verse 30, that this same, that same night, Belshazzar, the Chaldean king, was slain. So Darius, the Mede, received the kingdom at about the age of 62. Unbelievable. Look at this. Back to Walverd's uh, great insights about what went on. Look at this. 
The plan was finally conceived to divert the water of the Euphrates River. Okay, so this is the Persians and the Medes that are uh, literally have snuck up on Babylon that very night to divert the water of the Euphrates River, which ran underneath the wall in order to lower the level of the water sufficiently to permit the armies to wade underneath the opening into the city, both on the north and the south sides. This effort was underway on the very night of Belshazzar's feast as he gathered to encourage his lords and himself about the invincibility of the gods of Babylon. The graphic picture of the handwriting on the wall and Daniel's interpreting it as prophesying the downfall of Babylon was fulfilled only hours later as the Medes and the Persians overwhelmed the city of Babylon. Overnight, the city that could not fall fell just as Daniel had predicted. So, we could do many applications this evening, but I want to focus on just one. Here's our application. Here's your blanks. The believer who will pay the price to have God's wisdom, the believer who will pay the price to have God's wisdom can have clarity when everyone else is confused. See, within Daniel 5, I want us to identify a dramatic contrast. Here, we have the opportunity to see some of the most confused people in all of history <laughs> and one of the most insightful people in all of history. Look at back at the beginning, near the beginning of Daniel chapter 5, and listen to the verses again. Verse 6, the king's face grew pale. This is Belshazzar. The handwriting is now on the wall. And his thoughts alarmed him, and his hip joints went slack, and his knees began knocking together. And look at this. He says, they're all looking, and they're all looking, and they're all looking. What in the world is this? Verse 8, then the king's wise men came in, and they could not read the inscription to make known its interpretation to the king. Verse 9, then King Belshazzar was greatly alarmed, and his face grew even paler, and his nobles were perplexed. So there's the confused people. Ready for the insightful person now? Back to 25, verse 25. Now this is the inscription. This is written out. Many, many tackle your farshan. There's Daniel. Number, number, weight, division. Your, you have been numbered and found deficient. Weight. You've been weighed in the balance and you don't cut it. Your days are numbered. You've been weighed and you don't cut it. And division. Tonight, your, your uh, 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 land, your empire will be divided and it will fall. So think about this. The Babylonian officials were the very best that the world had to offer. They were educated, learned, knowledgeable, intelligent, and wise, according to the world. But look at the incredible contrast between their cluelessness and Daniel's clarity, right? Look back at verse 15. Back at verse 15 in Daniel chapter 5. Just now the wise men and the conjurers were brought in before me that they might read this inscription and they make, make its interpretation known to me, but they could not declare the interpretation of the message. And look with me at verse 17. Then Daniel answered and said to him, he told him, I'm going to give you all this stuff, if you can do it, Daniel. Verse 17, then Daniel answered and said to him, to the king, keep your gifts for yourself or give your rewards to someone else. However, I will read the inscription to the king and make the interpretation known to him. So look at this. Daniel was the kind of person who had clarity and insight 
and wisdom in the midst of a confusing, difficult, troubled world. Think about the world we're living in right now. When everyone else around him was clueless, when everyone else was afraid, when everyone else was irrational, and everyone else was completely bewildered, Daniel could walk into the room and look at the wall and say, what's wrong with you guys? Can't you read? It says, many, many tackle you farson. Daniel had a clarity of understanding that was not stumped by the most difficult of confusing dilemmas. When Daniel's culture was all over the map and without a clue, Daniel was able to cut through the fog and hear directly from God. Oh, that the church would be like that right now. Think of it this way. I've brought it forward now 2,600 years. You ready? Think of it this way. When CNN was saying this and Fox was saying that, when the Democrats were saying this and the Republicans were saying that, when Oprah was saying this and Dr. Phil was saying that, when the politicians and the judges and the scholars and the philosophers and the universities and the most elite thinkers in the world were absolutely confused, Daniel walked into the room, pierced through all the layers of confusion and said, I know the truth. It's as clear as can be. It's as plain as the nose on your face. Wow, what a testimony. So let me ask you a question. How do you become the one who everyone else comes to for answers when the situation seems impossible to understand? Here are three points from Daniel on how you become the one that everybody comes to in confusing days. Back to chapter 2. Back to chapter 2. Here's Daniel before Nebuchadnezzar and this amazing dream that he has had. Daniel chapter 2, verse 25. Then Arioch hurriedly brought Daniel into the king's presence and spoke to him saying, right, all the rest of the officials are all going to die because they can't do this for Nebuchadnezzar, right? I have found a man among the exiles from Judah who can make interpretations known to the king. The king answered and said to Daniel, whose name was Belteshazzar, are you able to make known to me the dream which I have seen in this interpretation? And listen to this incredible answer from Daniel. Daniel answered before the king and said, as for the mystery which the king has inquired, neither wise men, conjurers, magicians, nor diviners are able to declare it to the king. However, there is a God in heaven who reveals mysteries. How do you become the one that everyone comes to in confusing days? Number one, write it in. Be humble enough, be humble enough to acknowledge that true wisdom comes from God alone. Listen, church, many of us act like we know the answers for this desperate day, but has it not become clear that we're totally in over our heads in this day of darkness? Have the forces of darkness not yet humbled us so that we can finally know that we should be on our faces saying, Oh God, we don't know what to do, but our eyes are on you. Number two, back to Daniel chapter one, to the cha uh, left one chapter. Daniel chapter one, verse three, look at this. Then the king, this is Nebuchadnezzar, when the exiles have just come in. So here's Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, and Daniel, all being brought into the king's courts, right? Then the king ordered Ashpenaz, the chief of his officials, to bring in some of the sons of Israel according to some of the royal family and of the nobles, youths 
in whom there was no defect, and they were good-looking, showing intelligence in every branch of wisdom, endowed with understanding, and discerning knowledge, who had, had the ability for serving the king's court, and he, he ordered him to teach them, listen, ordered them to teach them the literature and language of the Chaldeans or the Babylonians. It's just another name for Babylonia, right? Okay, so number two, you ready? How do you become the one that everyone comes to in confusing days? Number two, be shrewd as a serpent and innocent as a dove. This is exactly the kind of scriptural concept that exudes from both Old and New Testament. You see, here we see that the young Hebrews were schooled in what was basically the best secular university in the land. And even though there would have been many, many parts of their education that was inconsistent with their faith, nonetheless, God used the knowledge that they gained to put them into positions of influence in the highest offices in Babylon. And this points to two pitfalls that many believers can get caught in nowadays. Ready? Pitfall number one. Here's your blank disdaining any knowledge that isn't Christian. See, as you read further in Daniel, it's amazing to see how diligent he was to learn from the Babylonian teachers. He learned to speak and write Babylonian Aramaic. And notice, look at this. God was using this secular education to prepare him to be the chief administrator of the entire kingdom. Many Jews could have said to Daniel, you shouldn't learn that heathen language. You should only know Hebrew, because Hebrew is God's language. Well, guess what? Did you know it's the only part of the Old Testament that's like this? Did you know that more than half of the book of Daniel was written in Babylonian Aramaic? That's right. The Chaldeans were teaching Daniel the language that God would have had him use to help write some of the most incredible prophecies and precepts in all of Scripture. That's right, in the Babylonian Aramaic that Daniel learned at Babylon University. Now today, fortunately, many believers isolate themselves away from thoughts, concepts, knowledge, and education that come from secular scholarship and scientific pursuit. So they intentionally remain ignorant of the development of new knowledge and disdain the thought of being involved in the discourse of education, and they blame our universities for the world's woes. But see, this creates a false dichotomy that is not biblical. You know what the false dichotomy is? There isn't worldly truth and godly truth. Here is the biblical axiom. Write it in. Here's your blanks. The biblical axiom is, all truth is God's truth. All truth is God's truth. When we fail to understand this, we start fearing scientific truth or sociological truth or psychological truth. But the issue isn't whether, where the truth comes from. Listen, church. The issue isn't where the truth comes from. The issue is whether it's true or not. The key is being able to discern between truth and falsehood. To be able to know when lies are masquerading as the truth. But truth shouldn't be feared, no matter what the source, because all truth belongs to God. So Christians should read widely. We should read very widely. This puts us in the position to communicate the gospel and the truth to people because we know how to communicate with them. 
We don't believe that that the, we don't believe in their worldview, but we should understand their language. With Daniel in his day, we should be learning the Babylonian of our day. This is one of the reasons I've spent my entire career in academic medicine. So let me just give you an, an example from my areas of specialty. Aren't you glad that we're, there were secular scientists who studied the vaccine virus until a vaccine was created that eradicated smallpox completely from the face of the earth? And aren't you grateful that God has used secular science to produce vaccines for the coronavirus that are 95% effective and 100% effective against severe disease and death? Remember, all truth is God's truth. And so, followers of Christ should be the best students on the planet. Daniel and his three friends were the best students in Babylon. That's how we should be. Pitfall number two. Here's the balance. Pitfall number two. Don't be enamored with the world's wisdom. Don't be scared off so that you don't you isolate yourself and you can't speak the language of the day, but don't be enamored with the world's wisdom. What was amazing about Daniel was that he was immersed in learning and being educated about the world, but he wasn't stained by a worldly view. He was able to absorb the knowledge and the truth, but he was also able to resist being tainted by a worldly perspective. He was able to understand the upside-down kingdom, right? He, like the Apostle Paul, understood that God uses the foolishness of his kingdom to confuse the wise of this world. This is another facet of what it means to be, you know well, the New Testament uh, concept, I'm sure. This is, uh, this is a, a facet of what it means to be in the world, but not of it. We are to be very shrewd and knowing, but we're also called to be innocent children, innocent as doves, right? Who are led by the perfect otherworldly wisdom of God. Oh, that the American church would rediscover this biblical balance, becoming as brilliant as we can be with knowing how to communicate to a lost world and never being tainted by the worldview or the perspective, knowledgeable but not impressed or enamored with a worldly view. Number three, in Daniel 8, and you can turn there, the prophet sees a horrifying vision of the last days. We uh, got a little snippet of it, but uh, let's just look for uh, a minute at verse 15 in chapter 8, right? Here's, he's just seen this, this horrifying uh, vision of the last days into the world. Look at verse 15 of chapter 8. Verse 15 of chapter 8. It's a new paragraph. And it came about that when I, Daniel, had seen the vision, that I sought to understand it. And behold, standing before me was one who looked like a man. And I heard the voice of a man between the banks of the Uli, and he called out and said, Gabriel, <laughs> whoa, think who this is. Gabriel, give this man an understanding of the vision. So God is commanding Gabriel, the high archangel, to speak to Daniel and give him understanding of the vision. Verse 17, so he came near to me, Gabriel, coming to Daniel, to where I was standing. And when he came, I was frightened and fell on my face. But he said to me, son of man, understand that the vision pertains to the time of the end. 
Now, while he was talking with me, I sank into a deep sleep with my face to the ground, but he touched me and made me stand upright. And he said, behold, I am going to let you know what will occur in the final period of the indignation. That's the, the tribulation, right? For it pertains to the appointed time of the end. Look at the incredible spiritual experiences Daniel had and the dreams and the visions that he had. He's amazing. He's like, he's like the Old Testament Paul, right? These amazing revelations. He even got to talk with the high archangel Gabriel. But now look what he does. This is one of the things, reasons why you, you put scripture together and you read sometimes portions of scripture so you see what happens. Look what happens at the beginning of chapter 9. In the first year of Darius, the son of Ahasuerus, the Median descent, who was made king over the kingdom of the Chaldeans, in the first year of his reign, I, Daniel, listen to this, observed in the books the number of years which was revealed as the word of the Lord to Jeremiah the prophet for the completion of the desolation of Jerusalem, namely 70 years. So look at this. Daniel's reading the book of Jeremiah. Jeremiah, of course, had the spectacular to-the-month perfect prophecy from the beginning of the exile until the end of the exile. We've touched on that before and will again in the future. But I want us to watch this. I want us to not miss this. Daniel had just had a prolonged conversation with one of the three most powerful of all of God's angels. But look at what he was doing now. He's reading the book of Jeremiah. Why isn't he still basking in one of the most exhilarating of all experiences that any of God's children have ever had? What in the world was he doing sitting down to read the detailed numerology from one of the Old Testament prophets? Here's the point. How do you become? How do you become the one who everyone comes to in confusing days? Write it in. This is so important. Don't be enamored with the spectacular. Don't be enamored with the spectacular. Be enamored with the word. The word. Let me ask you a really practical question. When was the last time you read the book of Jeremiah like Daniel? In a confusing day? You know how Daniel had it down? Because he was reading the prophets. He was reading the word. This is a remarkable thing. See, even dreams and visions that had been spoken to him by angels didn't take away Daniel's commitment to know the word of God. You see, salvation is free, but wisdom is costly. Cutting through the fog of confusion is costly. It takes the hard work of really knowing God's word. So do you want to walk into a room of confused people and say, oh, I know exactly what that says. It says, many, many tekel you farsen, when everybody else is completely confused. If you want that kind of wisdom and clarity, then don't be enamored with visions or dreams or miracles or even visitations by angels. Daniel wasn't so enamored with the high archangel of God talking to him that it disrupted his plan to be reading the word. Rather, only be enamored and committed to the word of God. We're surrounded by complicated questions and complex issues. 
The number of gray areas and the potential for the slippery slope and the ability to compromise because of all the worldly confusion around us has never been greater, has it? Do you want to know how to guide your children and your grandchildren through the treacherous waters of the 21st century in this country? Do you want to know how to find the perfect balance between discipline and mercy, between law and grace, between decisiveness and patience? Do you want to quickly identify the threats to your marriage, to your home, to your family, to your relationship with God? Do you want to be able to walk into the room and sense the impending disaster? Daniel did. Everybody else was partying, but Daniel knew exactly what was going on. Do you want to know when the enemy is sneaking in under the foundations because a river has eroded away the protection and security? Do you want to see the threats when everyone else is blind? Do you want to hear the ways of truth when everyone else is deaf? Do you want to have the pinpoint accuracy on the exact steps to take in life when everyone else is being tossed to and fro by waves of confusion? Then listen, put your hand to the plow and discipline yourself to be a maniac for the word of God. Take it out and read it in the waiting room. Take it out and read it when you're in line, right? When you're in long lines waiting somewhere. By the way, this is a, actually a great way sometimes to initiate conversations that will help you have opportunities for the gospel with people you don't even know. And take the word out and read it when you're pumping gas. You know what? With your device, I don't have my right here. You can do that while you're spending the three and a half minutes pumping that gas. Here's the key. Immerse yourself in the word of God. Drown yourself in the word of God. And then when everyone else is paralyzed by fear and everyone else is perplexed, and when the confusion is overwhelming, you'll be able to humbly announce, I know what to do. I know the way to go. I have the answer. But it's not from me. It comes directly from the Creator. But I've been listening to His Word and learning His Word. And His Word is life, clarity, truth, and salvation. Let's pray. Well, Lord, we've been through some amazing prophecies tonight. It's just amazing prophets. Here's Isaiah, who is prophesying the rise of the fourth great world empire before the first one has even fallen. Here's Isaiah looking for empires into the future and two of them don't even exist during his time yet because Isaiah heard from you Jeremiah heard from you Daniel heard from you Lord Esther heard from you so Lord may we be in your word saturated with the deep things of the holy so that we in this confused day have an answer for our children, our grandchildren, our friends, our neighbors. And when everyone else is confused and fearful and saying, oh no, what are we going to do? We'll have that deep confidence that we have heard from you and your word. Lord, change us through your Holy Spirit. Give us a desire, a thirst, a hunger to know your ways. We love you, Lord. Amen.